Hey everybody, this is Jay Shear, co-founder and executive director of the Reclamation Society. Welcome to the Reclamation Society podcast. I'm very excited about today's topic because we're going to be discussing my favorite comic book character, Batman. Specifically, we'll be talking about Batman Begins, the first of Christopher Nolan's Caped Crusader trilogy. And as you'll hear, the movie focuses on two very important topics, fear and justice. These are two topics that need to be explored in our world today. 2016 has been a challenging year, to say the least. Even just in the past two weeks, our news has been dominated by stories of more terrorist attacks. And of course, we've been confronted with the troubling reality of African-American men being gunned down by police officers. Times like these forced us to reflect on the two things Batman Begins deals with, justice and fear. We have to understand how these things impact both our lives and our communities. And I think we also need to ask ourselves where our sense of justice and our own feelings of fear come from. And this is really Bruce Wayne's journey throughout the film. He's considering those same two things. As you listen along, I encourage you to think through the concept of justice and reflect upon our own fears. Because if we're going to be solving these problems in the real world, we're going to need to understand them in greater depth. And I hope this podcast will help you do that. Joining me on the podcast today is a good friend of mine, Daryl Smith. Daryl is not only the biggest Batman fan that I know, he's also the biggest Christopher Nolan fan that I know, which is perfect for this particular podcast. Before we get started, I do want to remind everybody that the Reclamation Society is a nonprofit organization, and these podcasts are only possible because of the generosity of others, just like you. If you can give, even if it's just a dollar a month, we greatly appreciate it. You can do so at reclamationsociety.org give, and we thank you in advance for doing so. I also want to mention really exciting news. July 24th, 2016, we are releasing our Star Wars fan film called Star Wars Rivals, and it'll be on YouTube. We're very excited about this. Make sure you go and check it out. It's a film that deals with verbal abuse uh, and bullying, and of course, it has lightsaber battles. If you go to our YouTube channel, um, you can subscribe so that you don't miss out on our Star Wars fan film. Finally, if you want to join our conversation, we have two ways for you to do that. The first is that you can head over to our blog and comment on the blog post specifically about Batman Begins. If you want to ask a question, share your perspective, um, all that can be done at reclamationsociety.org blog. We also have a new email address, reclamationsociety at gmail.com. If you have something to share, shoot us an email, and we might even be able to read it on the next podcast. If you like what you hear on this podcast, this is the final thing I'll say, please share it. Uh, we are looking to expand our reach, and if you know any folks that like Batman or who are currently in the process of exploring the concept of fear or justice, share this podcast with them. Okay, that's it for announcements, so let's dive into Batman Begins. Thanks for joining us, Daryl. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So the first thing we're going to cover today, we're going to jump right in. And as you guys know, we always ask the question of what are the storytellers telling us is true. In this case, we're going to start with um, the truth that they're conveying about spirituality specifically. And we're just going to dive right in because the first topic we're going to address is a big one. And then actually the second topic we're going to address is a big one too. But we're going to start with justice. And I think the question that the movie's sort of dealing with is, what is justice? And I put this in the spiritual category because um, in my, from my point of view, 
a person's sense of justice is largely derived from their spirituality. And we can look at how that plays out in terms of how the characters feel about their own outlook on justice. So let's just ju- jump in. Um, why don't we talk, Daryl, you can give me, what, what do you think about Raza Ghul's definition of justice? What does justice mean to him? Well, justice to Raz is absolute, and it's however he sees it. You know, like, for him, justice is about punishment. It's about, you know, you have become so corrupt that now you just need to be wiped away. You're a cancer on the world, and he believes that he has the power to make that choice and just wipe you away. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's a major tenet of his. And I, I had on here, too, like, he's very harsh. He does have a high moral standard and a high moral code. But like you said, noncompliance is death. Right. It's just, you don't comply, you should, you should die. Right. Um, how about Alfred? Let's, let's tackle Alfred. What is the, what is, what's Alfred's view on justice? Alfred is softer, obviously. I mean, Alfred is the most compassionate character in the movie, I think. Um, but I think he feels a great sense of justice in terms of who he has charge of. Like, for instance, he's very concerned with how Bruce, you know, treats his father's legacy and things like that. So I think Alfred's sense of justice for those he loves is incredibly strong. Absolutely. Yeah. Mercy and grace are components of his view of justice. Yeah. There's a point at which for Alfred, when you're administering justice, you can actually become a criminal in the way that you administered justice. And he's right. very quick to kind of fight against that. How about Rachel? Rachel Rachel's one of my favorites when you talk about justice. Um, she literally gives you her definition in the film. She says, justice is about harmony. Revenge is about making yourself feel better. So as, as my wife and I were watching the movie together, we were talking a lot about Rachel's definition of justice, and it feels a lot like shalom, you know, like all is as it should be. I mean, the Bible talks about an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but it's for the sake of everything being all is as it should be, not for the sake of you feeling better because you got back at somebody for wronging you. So I really like the whole idea that justice equals harmony. Yeah, that's, that's a really great point. And I think even in comparison to Alfred, she is, things are very black and white for her. She's tough. She's rigid. Um, she rejects any form of corruption uh, but also holds those administering justice to the high moral standard. Yeah. Which is, which is cool. Like when she slaps Bruce for having a gun on him. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yeah. So how about, how about Bruce's definition? You know, in some ways, Bruce's definition is the hardest one to tackle, which is funny because he's the picture of justice in the movie. But I think he's a little grayer. You know, I think he's definitely against corruption. He definitely wants to you know, weed out corruption and make Gotham a better place. He's not to the extent of Roz where he thinks it's just beyond saving and he wants to wipe it out. He certainly thinks that some extreme measures are needed, you know? So he wants to help people. He wants to save people, but he's still willing to go out there and beat people up and, you know, string people up on a giant light and make a bat signal. And, and I guess that's what, one of the things that makes this movie great. But Bruce is one of the grayest characters in the movie, I think, even though he's the hero. 
Yeah, I agree. He stops just short of an eye for an eye. Yeah. He, he pushes that boundary as far as he possibly can. And his, his, there is sort of an indication that corruption wins if justice isn't swift and heavy-handed. Yeah. And we're going to get into this in a minute, but fear is a part of justice for him. Criminals need to fear justice and the repercussions of immorality. Yes. And I think the one, the one thing about um, Bruce that is true of Ra's al Ghul but is not quite as true of Rachel and Alfred is that Bruce applies a corporate component of justice where their component of justice is almost more personal. Hmm. Like everyone needs their level of everyone needs a certain level of justice, but it's it's very they make it really personal. Where Ra's al Ghul makes it completely impersonal. It's yes. like it doesn't matter what you think. It's it's about about what the community as a whole is right. dealing with, and I think that that's sort of um, Bruce's definition kind of leans in that direction. Like we're dealing with justice as a community. Yeah, uh, which is sort of an interesting kind of take on it. Tell me about uh, Gordon. Gordon. Gordon's another one of my favorites. He. Um you know, if you look at Gordon within the context of a Christian worldview, he's kind of the picture of what it's like to be in the world, but not of the world. You know, Gordon is in the thick of Gotham. He's in the muck and the mire, and he's not shying away from it. He talks to those people. You know, he works with Flass, who's obviously one of the most corrupt ones in the movie, but it doesn't take him over. He's, he's there slow and steady trying to pick away at it and do good as much as he as one man can do. Yeah, that's, I think that's a really great way of describing him because I was seeing a lot of the same things. Like Justice is almost a game to be played. And, and it's, it's, when I say that, I don't mean that he has a lack of a sense of justice, but, he, but he's in this corrupt system where he's saying, well... I'm not going to snitch on you guys. Like he says that. I'm no rat, right? So again, it's, that, it's the corporate justice versus the individual justice. Like, yeah, I realize that you are going to not be just. I'm going to be just. I'm not going to rat you out for your injustice, right. but it has to start with one person. Right. And he kind of just, he goes, he goes on that. And I think he is battling from the ground floor. Like he's going to influence and he's going to build a reputation and build people around him to kind of, it's going to be a groundswell. Right. As opposed to, let's say Bruce or Rachel who are like, it doesn't matter. Like I'm coming in like a, like a tornado and it's going to be this way. Yeah. They're demanding everyone acclimate to their sense of justice. So yeah, I agree totally a hundred percent with what you're saying. So finally, the last person, um, unless you want to bring somebody else up, but the last person that I wanted to touch on was just Thomas Wayne's Mm -hmm. definition of justice. Thomas is the movie's great idealist. He's, and we'll talk about this more when we get into community, I think, but he's the picture of everything that's right in the world, especially for Bruce. He's a doctor and a businessman and he's got Wayne Tower in the Narrows, but he doesn't work there. He works at the hospital because he wants to help people and... You know, he built the rail system. He's kind of the picture of, I guess, also using your resources to combat justice. You know, he's wealthy. He's got all this power behind him. Yeah, that, I agree on all that. I think that he has in mind systemic improvement. In other words, there seems to be in, in Thomas Wayne's mind a system that is in and of itself allowing for corruption. But rather than say, I'm going to come in and like, dictate how the system should work he's actually trying to change hearts and minds 
He's right. stepping in to show compassion to say, like, look, isn't compassion better? As opposed to saying, no, justice must be X and you must adhere to justice. He's, he's actually showing an example of what compassion looks like so that you wouldn't need as much justice, so to right. speak. He, he's sort of like the modern-day millennial social justice is key to creating a justice system in some ways. He is, but he's also old school in the sense that, and I think Gordon's this way too, like they do both – they both exhibit a pursuit of justice in fighting all of the injustice around them. But it's also very personal and very granular for them when they're just at home, you know, Yes. in his reactions with Bruce and Gordon, you know, there's definitely some motivation behind Gordon where half the reason he's probably trying to fight all this stuff is because his family lives in Gotham (laughs) and he has children, you know? Right. Exactly. All right. So that's a pretty comprehensive look at the different characters and their view of justice. Now the question I want to ask you, Daryl, and then I'll answer this question myself, is which character's version of justice do you sort of gravitate towards or agree with, if any? Yeah, it's, it's hard because I think, well, with the exception of Roz, I think there's something good in each of them. I would probably be something of a hybrid of Rachel and Gordon, I'd like to think. I really like the idea that Harmony is justice. But I can also relate to Gordon, you know, the whole, I mean, I mean, I don't live in this terrible, corrupt society. I mean, to some extent, I guess we all do, but not on the level of Gotham, but I like Gordon's devotion to it, especially in the context of being a, a, a husband and a father. I can relate to that. You know, like when you have these other people to live for, chipping away at that stuff just becomes so much more important. But if I'm honest, you know, I can, I can see a little bit of Bruce too. Like, you know, I can have a temper and I don't like being wronged. And, you know, I, I get a sense of wanting some sort of not, I'm not retribution, but you know, some sort of make me feel whole again, you know? Yeah. I, I kind of felt the same way because and I will say that I'll go even this far. I think that there, I can even see cases where even Raza Ghul's version of justice is worth entertaining. Now, I say that not from a, not from a standpoint where I think it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that's true. But I can see why you would feel that the entire system, because I guess what I guess what I'm trying to get at is that. Justice is always based on a collective community's understanding of moral standards. Sure. And what, what happens when those moral standards are not upheld? So I, I, I sort of feel like there's this continuum that the movie's presenting, and it's actually done um, so well. Everybody has their view on justice, and you're kind of traveling through the movie alongside these characters who all have their view on justice and are all in their own way, shape, or form trying to root out corruption. Sure. Obviously, except for the bad guys. So I think for me, it's a, it's a little bit tough because I feel like you have to you have to build your system off Thomas Wayne's definition. Mm-hmm. In other words, the the goal is compassion. The, the goal has to be compassion, um, and the goal has to be compassion in the long term. Mm-hmm. However, when you see a part of a system that's incredibly corrupt, and I'll give you a really I'll give you a tangible example because I've helped some nonprofits. I've done some consulting for nonprofits that are doing um, 
uh, they're trying to rescue girls out of sex trafficking. Sure. Sometimes little boys too. And so it's hard not to have a Ra's al Ghul attitude about that, right? It's hard not to come in and say like, just wipe these people out because what they're doing to kids is atrocious and they just like, just, just take them out. Now, I think as I consider that, what do you do with your own sense of justice? So I'm, I'm going to get more spiritual here because I believe that each individual has a choice to make about what their moral standard is. Sure. And I would argue that unless your moral standard is effectively to each their own and everybody can do whatever anybody's going to do and it's completely relativistic, I would argue that if that's not your view and you have some form of a standard, Mm -hmm. uh, you will probably at least one point in your life, fail to uphold your own standard. Totally. Right? It's, it's sort of like, I have a bunch of standards, but do I live those things out? I, I have standards where I say, you know, you, you can be mad at someone, but to then disparage them or, or even complain, whatever, like that would be a bad thing, right? But I do that all the time. Right. So I break my own moral standard consistently. So that's where I think the concept of justice and mercy must be sort of coupled together. Then you start to get into other character worldviews, right? You start to get into the uh, Alfred worldview where he says like, yeah, certainly Bruce uphold a high moral standard, but be careful because of what happens if you don't have mercy and grace in your justice. Um, And I I guess at the end of the day, I would come from a worldview that says that each and every human being, despite our efforts to be good, is not good. And therefore, we need rescuing from even our own sense of justice. Right. So it, it, I think it's a very complex thing. And I guess I agree with different characters to different extents depending on the situation. And I'll, I'll give you this too. This is kind of another thing that I see wrong with Roz's definition. Because, yeah, I can see that too. Like there's some ugly stuff in the world. And on the surface, it would be really nice to just wipe away the people that are committing the ugly stuff. Wipe away the sex traffickers, wipe away terrorists, mm-hmm. you know, and that would be great. But in Roz's definition, he's talking about completely obliterating an entire city so that it can be reborn again. Right. But is that really going to happen? If you come in and you commit genocide and you kill an entire city and burn it to the ground, is something beautiful going to grow from that? Probably not. You know, people in the world are going to see that and they're going to be like, oh, that's an option. Okay. And then that kind of ugliness is going to spread even more. So you have to think about the larger redemptive question, which I think is where where you're talking about mercy and grace, where that comes in too. Because it's not just an action. It's what feelings and emotions and ideals does that action produce after it's been committed. Exactly. Well, and, and I think too... Uh, I mean, this is such a deep topic. We could probably go on for an hour on this because I I think it's so fascinating. But I think we must understand that in the real world, there's no such thing as heroes and villains. Right. We all have a bit of hero in us. We all have a bit of villain in us. One could argue that in this movie, there's no such things as heroes. Exactly. That's not exactly. Sorry. No, no. But but (laughs) but to to that to that end. Even for, even for sex traffickers, despite the fact that their behavior is atrocious, can they be redeemed? And that's a question that we have to ask. Right. Um, because I think that Raz al Ghul is basically saying there is no redemption available for you at all. 
if you fall outside out out of the line of the strict moral code, you're just wiped out, like you're right. saying. And, and I think that that what that does is that basically says, first of all, we all must adhere to Razal Ghul's moral code. Who's who's to say that that's even accurate and good? Right. But if we don't, we risk being obliterated. And I would and I would argue that even if we were to look at Razal Ghul's moral code, he can be convicted by his own moral code and need to be killed sure. off himself. So it's just really. Deep, fascinating topic. I think what we, what I would recommend is that we try and say that we have high moral standards and that we use Thomas Wayne's definition of creating systems that w- w- promote compassion. Yes. But at the same time, we have to have these, we have to have rules in place, but we also have to have grace and mercy to some, to some extent. Right. So now we're going to dive into, just segue into a completely um, different topic, also spiritually related, I believe, and that's fear. Um, most notably, Bruce must overcome his fear to become Batman, but the movie deals with other sources of fear as well. So obviously one of the main villains is Scarecrow and his whole weapon, he's like weaponized fear. So what does the movie tell us is true about fear and also overcoming fear? Well, fear is obviously a huge theme in the movie, just like you said. And I think in some way, every single character is interacting with it and, It's almost as if, you know, fear and death, which I know we'll talk about a little bit more too, the movie also says that how you react to experiencing those things is a big part of what defines you. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing all the way through because there's healthy fear, you know. Most of the references to fear in scripture presented as a good thing, presented as reverence for the Lord, you know. Mm -hmm. So... We often think of fear as a bad thing, and it certainly can be. But I think, for instance, Bruce, part of what keeps him from crossing the line is he still has some fear in him. I don't think he does completely overcome it in order to become Batman. I think there's some things that he fears in a healthy manner that help him be Batman. For instance, he fears killing. Mm. You know, that's crossing a line for him. And I think if you look at it deeper, he fears falling short of the ideal that his father set forth for him. But, and then you look at somebody like Roz who has completely set fear aside. I don't know if that means he's conquered it. He's probably just as afraid as anybody else, but on the surface it can look like he's set it aside and he doesn't act out of fear. And there's zero compassion to his behavior whatsoever. He'll cross any line. It doesn't matter. Yeah, that's, that's, Totally true. There was one character. Let me see if I can find it in my notes. I think it was either Thomas or Alfred, but he actually talks about how everybody, everyone fears. It's Thomas. Yeah. Yeah. He says, everybody's afraid. And Bruce says, even the scary things. And he says, especially the scary things. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, no, that was a that was a fantastic way of answering the question. My my answer doesn't expound upon that much, except to say that I do think that um, part of what happens in Bruce's journey is that his desire for revenge and the fear that comes alongside his loss is what's driving his anger, um, and but he even fears what the anger means for him. Yeah, I think. You mentioned this in the justice um, uh, conversation, but Rachel even indicates that 
it really shouldn't be about his own personal benefit. It should be about the community benefit. Right. Like, this isn't about you. Right. And I think that kind of guides him through his his wrestling with fear. Yeah. So I, your answer is better than mine. I like that a lot. So now we just jump into the question that is, what is your personal view on the topic? I'll go ahead and answer this one first. I think Nolan treats the topic artfully. And so when I say that, what I mean is he creates this metaphor with the bats. And it's kind of interesting because I don't necessarily fear bats myself. Like, that isn't a fear for me. But he gives, actually, Bruce a reason for fear of bats. Um, when he falls into the well, we see all the bats kind of wash over him. And then he, th- this, this generates this um, PTSD, this post-traumatic stress um, disorder that he has that then even makes his fear grow deeper and grow even more severe. Because we watch him when he's in the theater... And it's fear of the bats on stage that drives him to want to escape and try to leave and try to get away. And we see him, his parents, like, because Thomas takes on this compassionate role as a father who says, oh, well, let me pull my son out of fear. Unbeknownst to both of them, that same fear is going to drive them into an alleyway where the fear is going to ramp up uh, even more because now his parents are going to die right in front of him. And... So, so there's this great metaphor that's going on and it's, and it's causing systemic fear in his life is causing worse and worse events to happen, basically, is, is what it's indicating. And I think that one of the things he's trying to deal with as a character and one of the things that he finally starts to deal with later on in the movie, and this is where we see like a lot of his character development, is that he's so angry that he lets fear dictate his choices. He's seen it from a very young age, like, Fear has dictated my choices all along this way. And it's not until he can let go of some of that fear, like you said, he can have a healthy dose of it so that he doesn't cross a line. But he needs to let go of some of it so that he can let the anger kind of dissipate and get away from him. And I think that that resonates with me. I think there is a, there is a certain amount of, um, like you say, there's a certain amount of healthy fear. I mean, you know, you should probably have some fear of heights or else you wouldn't take the precautions necessary to not die, right? So, so there is a certain component of fear that is, that is healthy. But I think also that when, as human beings, when we tend to fear something, we tend to then find it very difficult to love. So if we, for example, if I fear heading down to Skid Row, which I would say I do kind of fear heading down to Skid Row, when I get to Skid Row, do I have a heart that's outreach and compassion oriented, mm-hmm. like a Thomas Wayne? Yeah. Not really, because I'm scared. So what am I trying to do? I'm trying to protect myself. So fear results in protection of self, whereas I think love and the overcoming fear actually has an outward-focused view as opposed to an inward-focused view. So yeah. I, I resonate with what they're trying to say in the movie, for sure. Yeah, I think fear is when you think about it is it's a very self-focused thing because oftentimes you're fearing for yourself you know i guess when you have a family when you have kids you get to the point where you're fearing for them as well but um you know if you put it in the context of the christian life which you know we both resonate with you you get this element where fear is an indication that you're not trusting God with something as well. So that's another, that's another picture of it being a negative thing and even a sin, quote unquote, because it separates you right. from God. So yeah, I guess maybe a good word for the healthy fear would be reverence. But yeah, I agree. It's, 
fear is not something that you can allow to run your life because then you'll never make decisions based on anything other than safety or security or comfort. So in a sense, that's definitely something that needs to be overcome. And you look at fear in the context of some of the other characters in the movie, it's even worse for them because they're in a sense of helplessness. Bruce is not. He has training. He has resources. He's got all this stuff. But you look at the the innocent people in Gotham, they're living in fear of walking outside and getting killed. Fighting fear is almost a selfless act for Bruce. In, well, not almost. It is a selfless act for Bruce in that sense because he's fighting against their fear just as much as he's fighting against his own. Yeah, and just to piggyback on that because I think that's a really great point. Um, I don't think Bruce can become Batman until he overcomes his root fears because, as Rachel points out, he would only be fighting fear to make himself feel better as opposed to doing it for Gotham as a whole. Yeah. Um, and I think that probably in this regard, the character that is actually the strongest in the way that, that he deals with fear, because Rachel sort of just ignores fear. She's just sort of like a bull in a china shop. Yeah. She's going to do what she's going to do. Like right. she kind of just ignores the fact that like there's people after her, you right. know? Um, but Gordon to me is the one that, feels fear constantly and yet is so courageous that he keeps plugging along. He, he, he encounters fear in like almost every, every moment he's in the movie, he looks like he's about to have a panic attack. <laughs> and rightfully so because he, because I mean, we're talking about a guy who sees corruption even from the very people who are suppo- supposed to protect us from corruption. And yet he still faces it. And if you look at the arc of his character, I know we'll talk about this again more too, but in the beginning of the movie, when you have young Bruce after his parents are just killed, Gordon is his sense of comfort. Gordon is the one that is telling him that his world didn't just end. And then Gordon spends the next couple of decades learning how hard this city really is, but not giving up. Yep, absolutely. Cool, good, good topic. This one is an interesting one too, I think. Bruce takes on another persona in order to combat crime. And he does that for a lot of different reasons that we'll get into. And while it's beneficial for him to have this dual identity, this double life as both Bruce Wayne and as Batman, it also has its drawbacks. So what do you think the movie is telling us is true about leading this double life with these dual identities? I think there's definitely a sense that you can't fully devote yourself to either side. If you have that going on, you know, he can't be fully Bruce and he can't be fully Batman because if he's fully Bruce, then he can't go out at night and do what he does and get on the street and protect people. But if he's fully Batman, then the people in his life are just going to disappear and he's not going to have any connection to the people he's trying to protect. Um, So I think there's that sense that it's kind of a maybe a self-destructive balance which I think is why throughout the Dark Knight trilogy, I don't want to talk too far ahead, but throughout the trilogy, there's this sense that Bruce doesn't want to be Batman forever. This is something he wants to eventually get away from because I just don't think that's a way to sustain life. You see that a lot in superhero stories. Like everybody has their secret identities and they're doing it to protect their loved ones, which is great, but man, that's got to take a toll. You know, if you can't be fully honest about who you are half the time, 
Yeah, 100%. In fact, I don't even have anything to add to it. I mean, the only thing I might add is that if you, if, if, um, he, he, it is communicating to us that if you have a dual identity, ultimately you're going to become a loner. Um, so let's just go both sides. Exactly. Exactly. On both sides. Great point. So I'll just, because you did such an artful job of explaining that, what's your personal take on that, on the dual identity type issue? Don't do it. (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I've never been, I've never been a superhero, so, you know, I've never had to deal with any of that kind of thing, but, but, you know, if you're, it, life is just easier when you're able to be honest with everybody around you, especially those you love, you know, you don't have to deal with the anxiety of, are they going to discover this about me? I think that's just another picture of the, you know, shalom is, it is as it should be, you know, Mm -hmm. that's that harmony. And I, I have a little bit more to say about this later on in the context of um, community. But I think to a certain extent, it's very difficult not to have multiple identities in our lives. Because, you know, I go to work, I have an identity at work. I'm talking on a podcast, I have an identity on a podcast. I have, you're my, you're my friend. Uh, now, there are some times when... Uh, like for you and I, we get to work together and be friends. And so oh, right. there's a fuller picture of the individual. And, and, and I, like you're saying, I think we, we, it's better to, be, to have a full picture because now, now you're dealing with, with the full person. Um, unfortunately, that also means to a large extent you're also dealing with the negative aspects of the full person. Because it, it's, yeah. really, it's really nice to be a celebrity where hey, you all see me as this. Right, right. But what you really don't know is all the things that, you know, oh. all the moral standards that I break, right? Um, and so I, th- I do think that we live in a, in, a, in a world that's, even with the social media, that's very focused on dual identities. Like, look how much fun I'm having on Facebook. And then right, right, right. the reality is I'm, I'm miserable or whatever it is. Uh, and I don't, I don't mean to dive into that or make that a, a soapbox. But so I do think, though, that the, the essential piece, and you, and you said this, is that dual identities and not revealing all of ourselves prevent us from experiencing intimacy with friends and family uh, the way we need to in order to build deeper communities, Um, which is really good. So that's, that's excellent. And I don't think this movie, it sort of presents that as an issue, but it doesn't dwell there. So we won't either. (laughs) Right. Um, So, but we will, we will transition into this spiritual topic and this is a big one. Death. So what does the movie tell us is true about death? You know, the movie would seem to present death as something that is a wrong against a person. Like that's, death is something that has to be avenged. It's something that has to be corrected. It's something that has to be righted. It's almost like it's an injustice that has been committed against you. So the death of the Waynes is an injustice committed against Bruce. Uh, you know, that's... From a storytelling perspective, there's some there's a good sense to that, but in reality, death is unavoidable. <laughs> you know, like we'll never be able to escape death. And so, is it the death itself? Is it the manner how the death occurs? But death is certainly something that defines Bruce in this movie. You know, it, his world goes from looking like one way to being completely different, and he spends. His, the entire movie and his entire life figuring out how to rectify that. Yep, absolutely. And on our last podcast, which you can listen to um, on iTunes or Podbean, 
we, Tim and I talked a lot about Deadpool's way of dealing with death. And he brought up the Nolan Batman series as a good example of how death should probably be dealt with. Mm-hmm. It's a serious topic, whereas Deadpool is, is not a serious topic. It's sure. cartoons right, and right. who cares if cartoons die, but all these are real people. So how do we justify that? But that aside, I think you're right. I think the Bruce's experience, this is where his fear is actually healthy. He has felt what it's like to lose and to have loss. And I think what his journey is, is learning that he doesn't want anyone else to feel that. Even criminals who probably deserve it, he shies away from going that far because he realizes that death is something that is, it's the ultimate injustice. And I think, so if there is a spiritual component to what Bruce is, is kind of thinking, and I don't, again, we're going to get into what Bruce's you know, kind of spirituality is defined as, but I do think that, that there's, a certain, there's a certain reverence for even I as a human being, a, a super kind of human being, even though he doesn't have superpowers, but you know what I mean, right. as this larger-than-life human being, even I don't have the power to take someone's life. It's not, it's not given, well, I have the power, but it's not given to me to do so. Um, it's not for me to do. Right. Uh, which I think is a really interesting take because obviously Ra's al Ghul and the League of Shadows ha- has basically taken that on. Ra's al Ghul has basically taken on the narcissistic view that his reality and what he would do in life is, is better than what God would do. God's clearly, clearly allowing this stuff to happen. I have to take it over and just, he's basically making himself God. Right. Whereas Bruce stops short of that. Right. Because Bruce thinks that that's something that is not for him to do. And Roz is very much in a similar place as Bruce because his wife was killed. So he's in the same situation where he's reacting to a loss. Well, and he has some, he has actually two of my favorite uh, quotes about death mm-hmm. in the movie because he says, uh, one quote is, death doesn't wait for you to be ready. Right. You know, there's a lot of truth to that because whether you've had a family member pass away or whether you've had a serious illness or, and if you've, you've faced death in some way, shape or form, I don't think you're really ever ready for it. Like it's not it's not something that we're built with to say like no I don't no I think you can get to a place in life where you're more comfortable dying and you have a hope for something more after you're dead and I'm not saying that but it really truly is you know I could leave this podcast and and it's not a stormy day but I could be struck by lightning I could get a car accident I I'm, I'm not I'm not ready for that I'm not planning for that right. I have events that I'm doing this weekend yeah. right like that's not a, that's not part of my plan but it's something that we can't control. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's artful, the way that that line shows up. I mean, the writing in this movie is just excellent. He, uh, the other line that I think is um, awesome is that he says, death isn't considerate or fair. Right. And I think this is where some of the characters that we talked about and their view of justice, they fall short because death isn't considerate or fair. Life inherently isn't considered or fair. No matter how hard we try and make it so, there are things outside of our control. So what do you do with that? And and I think that, you know, when we talked about fear, we can fear that or we can try and find some way to overcome that fear so that we can actually deal with it and not try to control. So pretty interesting. I do think that there are some characters like Falcone specifically who is further on to the Deadpool end of the spectrum, which means that, life and death are a means to control. So there are some other viewpoints expressed there, but 
um, he's only concerned with his own life and he doesn't place a whole lot of importance or value on the lives of others. Well, he's just, he's opportunistic. He's just feeding on the desperation of everybody in Gotham. Exactly. So I'm sure he fears death just as much as anybody else, but he's taking this opportunity. All these people are down. I'm going to kick them and take their money. You know, like yeah. that's what he's doing. That's a great point. You can even see him fear death because when he's in the back of the limousine and Batman's taking out all his henchmen, he's like, let's get out of here. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. I do think that the movie treats death fairly. In fact, I think that there's a certain reverence for death. We, our first podcast was on Superman. Right. I don't think Superman treats death fairly at all. And, I, and I'll, I'll tell you why. One, because in Krypton, they've... I don't want to say overcome death, but there's a certain solution for death, and that's like right. record yourself in a in an AI, yeah, yeah, and 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 be able to interact with the world still. So death is really kind of we're not sure what it means, but I think where it really starts to treat death unfairly is that Superman is it's just told to us over and over again. Zack Snyder tells us Superman is hope. Superman equals hope. Right. Well, yeah. If there's an invading alien. Or if uh, my, my oil rig starts to catch on fire, Superman is hope. But what happens after I die? I mean, that's not a lot of hope there. Right. We covered that in that podcast. And then, you know, you look at, you look at Deadpool and they're not treating death fairly there because really death doesn't matter. Sure. I think here is where um, you see a, the death being treated the most fairly of the three films for sure. And I think... You know, Alfred is this person who keeps coming back to Bruce to say, like, life is a sacred thing. Like, don't forget, Bruce, that life is a sacred thing. Right. Um, And I think that that's just really an important message in that when you watch a movie like Deadpool, it's easy to sort of go, well, okay, you know, they're using violence and death as comedy. And I think they're trying to do it in a cartoon way. So I'll give them a little bit of a pass on that regard. But I think we need to draw ourselves back into Batman Begins' way of dealing with death when we're truly dealing with the real world. Yeah, well, and the movie presents it as a very, almost a kind of a delicate, tenuous balance as far as how you're going to react to death. You know, because like I said, Bruce and Roz, not that different in their initial experiences, but the way they react to it. And the way they go from there, diametrically opposed, completely different. Yeah, you're right. I think the movie does, it does present the sanctity of human life. Um, It doesn't kill flippantly. Um, And, you know, killing is that one line that Bruce won't cross. That's what defines who he is. Like, he'll beat people up, he'll hang flasks from a roof and drop him down, but he won't kill. Yeah. And, you know, I think in real life, a moral code is not nearly that simple, but in this story, it makes sense. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, from there, we will go from death and transition into another intense topic. So now we're going to talk about evil and the question of what does evil really look like? What does it look like in the movie? How does the film combat evil? And then, how do we address that in our own lives? So what do you think? I think evil is, it's kind of a gray thing in this film a little bit, you know? I mean, it's a superhero film, so you have good versus evil, light and dark, Batman and Roz, but especially in a Chris Nolan story, it's just not that simple. 
I think evil is more about the health involved in how you react to your circumstances. So again, the difference between how Roz and Bruce treat losing somebody important to them. You know, Bruce could just as easily be as evil as Roz is, um, but he makes choices that keep him from doing that. So I think evil in this movie, you know, there's really no, there's no higher power in this movie. There's no, except for the quick reference to the devil, you know, when they're, when Bruce is fighting and wherever he was, but um, they don't really make references to God and the devil a whole lot. So evil is sort of based on humanity's view, which makes it gray, which makes it a little bit relativistic. So I really do think it's a matter of how these characters behave in the circumstances that they're in. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a couple of things that I felt like were sort of embodiments of evil. First of all, I would say I agree with you 100%. It's sort of like, how do you deal with life? And how yeah. do you... That, that's actually... I don't even have that on here, which I think is... I'm glad, really glad you brought that up. But I do think that the movie does say that there are certain things that are just inherently evil regardless. The first one being corruption, particularly um, systemic corruption. Right. Uh, that's seen as evil. The other one is using fear to control other people is basically seen as a form of evil. Obviously, Bruce uses it a little bit too. So like you said before, there's a healthy fear. Yeah. Uh, we have to have a healthy fear of justice. We should all have a healthy fear of justice. That Bruce embodies that in Batman. But you can also see, I mean, Scarecrow is probably, the between Scarecrow, Flash, and, um, and to a certain degree, Ra's al Ghul, those are the evil characters. And Falcone. And Falcone. Yeah. And Falcone. And so each of them are using um, either fear or corruption in some way. But, I mean, like you said, it's somewhat relativistic because Ra's al Ghul is actually trying to fight corruption with his worldview. It's just that it's... So I think the other thing that it says is, like, these things are inherently evil, corruption and fear, and, like, using fear. However, at the same time, if we lose a sense of compassion and humanity, then we're evil, even if we're trying to do the right thing. So, like, Ra's al Ghul is trying to do the right thing, create a better system... Right. But he loses all sense of compassion and all sense of humanity, and then we slip into evil. I think another thing the movie would, would say is evil is killing, or at least killing for the wrong reasons. Killing out of rage, killing out of revenge, killing for anything other than self-defense. Um, and this gets back to the question of, does the movie treat death fairly? Um, because the movie clearly presents that killing is evil. You know, Bruce won't kill the criminal in Roz's temple, he flat out says that he won't kill, you know, he won't cross that line. I'm no executioner. Um, and that's very important to how he behaves throughout the movie. They even have a, a quick offhanded reference when he's driving the Batmobile throughout the city. And then he gets back to the party at Wayne Manor and Alfred says, it's a miracle. Nobody was killed. You know, like it's clearly important that killing is evil in this movie, but then spoiler alert, at the end of the movie, I wouldn't say that Bruce kills Roz, but he has the option to save him, and he doesn't save him. You know, I don't. we don't need to get into storytelling and stuff like that. And I think that's an interesting point. Like, you talked about Man of Steel that somewhat suffers from that same conflict. But yeah, I think it would present it as evil, but in the end, Roz is beaten, 
by death. And did Bruce do that deliberately? Did he not? It's hard to say in that situation. One of the reasons that the Batman trilogy is my favorite trilogy is that I think that Nolan does such an articulate, like it's such a phenomenal job, for lack of a better word, of dealing with all of these real issues in, in really interesting ways. One of the ways I put it in my notes was it showcases different issues from very distinct sides. In other words, no one issue is like one-sided. There's always something to be said. The one thing that I, the metaphor that I came up with is the movie sort of puts us in Oppenheimer's shoes or, or, you know, the U.S. government's shoes. Do we kill millions of people to prevent millions of more deaths? What line do we cross in that? Do we develop and drop an atomic bomb? That's almost basically the question that the movie's asking, and it's just wrestling with that all over the place because Ra's al Ghul is saying, yeah, we drop an atomic bomb. Like, the corruption must be dealt with. Like, the greater good is more important than this this people group or, or these folks. But on the other far end of the spectrum, you have Thomas Wayne saying, no, we must fight the system through systemic influence and compassion. Um, and then you have Batman somewhere in the middle, and he's trying to find a better way. Yeah, and I think there's enough depth to these characters that you can also take it a step further than that, and you can infer that Roz might say that he's acting out of a concern for the greater good, but you you get enough of that character to know that he's flawed to the point where he's not. He's not acting out of the greater good. He's, as Rachel would say, just trying to make himself feel better. He's not trying to achieve something for somebody else. He's seeking revenge. Exactly, exactly. And if you guys can hear the dog in the background, that's my dog, my <laughs> puppy. He clearly wants to add his own opinion. I think this is also where Nolan uses Alfred so well. Because Alfred never, you know, in my metaphor, he never says, Bruce, you really can't drop the atomic bomb. Like, you know, you, know, you can't do that. But what he does do is he reminds Bruce of... Well, do you know what it would be like if you were someone living in Hiroshima and someone dropped a bomb on you? Like, so he, does, he doesn't, he's not like a, he doesn't dictate a moral code. Right. He actually just gets Bruce to think about the issue from his own internal set of emotions. Right. Uh, and and I, just, I, I don't know, Alfred's a, Alfred's a fantastic character. And then he backs that up with his behavior in that, and I think this is true of every quote-unquote good character supporting character in Batman's life he backs that up with faithfulness yep um which is something Roz doesn't have if you cross me I'm gonna kill you that's it you know Alfred twice in the movie Bruce says you still haven't given up on me he says never yep that's that's so awesome and we all need those people in our lives okay so this is a new sort of segment I'm adding to the, to the podcast because we sort of did it with Deadpool, and I think it's kind of an interesting exercise. But what we're going to do is we're actually going to assess. Daryl's going to give his opinion. I'll give my opinion. Um, where, what do we think Batman believes, and where do we think he's at spiritually? Man, that's hard. I'll tell you why that's hard for me. As I think about spirituality within this movie, or within most movies, you know, for me... As a Christ follower, spirituality has everything to do with the existence of God and the existence of the Trinity. And so when you take that out of it, you know, because there's not a whole lot of reference to God in this movie. So a higher being doesn't really exist in this story. There are higher ideals that are bigger than humanity, but not necessarily a higher being 
that we're all accountable to. And when you take that out of the picture, spirituality becomes such a nebulous term to me. And so from that perspective, I don't think that, I don't get the sense that Bruce or anybody in this movie believes in God. Um, so you, I guess you could call that atheist, agnostic, whatever it may be. It's just kind of not a topic in the movie. But they believe in something greater than man. They believe in the, the need for the presence of that in order for man to not fall into evil, mm-hmm. as Roz does. Because mm-hmm. Roz makes himself something that's greater than man. He believes that's what he is. So, And Bruce, you know, touches on that. He's like, if I become something bigger than a man, if I become something elemental, something terrifying, an idea, a legend, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think there definitely is a sense of something that humanity should strive for. I don't think it's clear that it's God, yeah. but I think there is something there. Yeah, that's an excellent answer. One of the things that made, you, that made me think about it, these are not in my notes, but as you talked about it, it made me think about it. I feel like if we were to assess this movie and, and kind of give it the... If you were to say, who in this movie is most like society's definition of a Christian, we would pick Rachel. Oh, I would pick Alfred. <laughs> well, well, I think, so, so, so this is where I was going to go with it, though. So, like, society's definition. Yes, okay. society's definition, okay. I would say, is Rachel. It's kind of like there's a stream, ex- extremely high moral standard. There's yes. very little compassion. She's shown. outspoken about what she believes. She, she criticizes Bruce for his own belief system, which is more nuanced than hers. Yes. Um, but where I was going to go with it, where, where, where you're going with it, in my mind... I ruined it for you. Yeah, no, no, no. It's, it's totally fine. <laughs> was that Alfred and Gordon, to me, actually live their lives in the way that I would think most Christians should be living their lives. And somebody else that we haven't talked about yet, uh, Lucius Fox. Yes. So I think Alfred is that picture of faithfulness and unwavering belief. Gordon is that picture of perseverance. And I think Lucius is a picture of trust. Hmm. I think Lucius puts a level of trust in Bruce that kind of helps him be the person that he wants to be. So I think all three of those guys are big examples. Absolutely. So so just let me jump into Batman really quick. So I, I agree with you. A hundred percent. He, he, he believes in a higher ideal. He's not someone who believes in the survival of the fittest. Yep. Ra's al Ghul does. Right. Um, and thinks he is the fittest. <laughs> yeah. He, he's, a, he's, uh, Ra's al Ghul, he has become God. He believes that we can attain Godhood and he's done it. Yeah. Essentially. Which in a sense you could say about Falcone too. I mean, he certainly believes in survival of the fittest. Yep. Actually, Falcone is probably the best example of uh, survival of the fittest at, in its in its root, without a higher higher sense of a moral code at all. I don't think you can call so you can't call Bruce just a strict evolutionist who believes in survival of the fittest. Which there are other nuances to evolution. I'm not saying I'm not right. I'm not pitting everybody into that category. Totally. He also is not a Jedi. He's right. not Zen about right. anything. Um, so you have to toss out Eastern mysticism as sort of a component of it. Right. He does have a high moral code, at least a higher moral code, and believes in something bigger, like you said. 
So he's driven to see that order should exist and realizes that there is a need for human beings to overcome chaos. But I do think that one of the things that's, that, that he's struggling against is that he is too reliant upon his, himself to really trust in anything bigger than himself. And, and I think that, that Ra's al Ghul is, like, plays on his fear in this regard when he talks about Thomas Wayne being unable to save the family. Like, whose fault is it that Thomas died? Right, it wasn't right. your fault. It was Thomas's Thomas, fault. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that Bruce has taken on that. Like, I'm, I'm the one that's going to change the world. Yeah. And he must control. He must do these things. So, so to me, he's agnostic, not in the way that Deadpool's agnostic. Because Deadpool's agnostic in, the way that, in a way that says it doesn't matter yeah. what really happens. Batman, that's not true at all. Like, he cares about what happens. Yeah. So he's agnostic, and I almost feel like he is searching for, for greater truth, potentially for God's truth. Sure. But he's so consumed with trying to bring about his own truth that he misses the opportunity to believe in something bigger than himself. Yeah, and I think in this movie, there actually is a journey where he learns to rely on others, be it Gordon, Alfred, Rachel, uh, Lucius. And I think there is a positive journey towards that in this movie. As you get later in the trilogy, that starts to break down and then right. has to be rebuilt. But, but I think that at least exists in this movie. Yeah. So now we get to break and we move into what the mo- what is the movie and and Christopher Nolan and the film's writers telling us is true about human beings. What does Batman Begins tell us about human nature? I think one of the things it's telling us about human nature is that. We need each other. And the loss of people that you love has a profound impact on who you are and what you do. I've thought through, you know, does, it, does the movie, would it seem to say that people are inherently good or inherently bad? It almost feels like it starts at a point of inherently good and then shows this picture of how corrupt and degraded that can become. And then what is necessary to fight back from that? I love that you just said that because that is, and I don't have this in my notes, but that may be why I believe this is one of the best comic book movies. Because it doesn't treat morality as a one-trick pony. You're either inherently bad or you're inherently good. It shows the struggle that exists. Even when we see Man of Steel, like we never at any point think that... Superman is bad. Like he's never, he never does. The only bad thing he does in that entire movie is he takes that giant semi truck and like smashes it. But we want him to do that because the douchebag in the bar. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so like, like that's not a thing for Superman. Superman is going to be morally good. Now there's an, there's a question as to how morally good will he be? Will he take on the hero mantle or will he just kind of stay hidden? Mm-hmm. Like Jonathan kind of suggests that he should. So, but this movie doesn't do that. This movie says, no, every human being must wrestle with their own morality or their own moral code is a better way of saying it. And, and I think that that's very true. So, so I think that it does show that if we're left to our own devices, we oftentimes seek our own self-interest and we, in doing so, we can allow systems to be created that reward corruption Right. Hence Gotham, right? Gotham is corrupt. Why? Because most of the people in power are corrupt. 
Um, and corruption is defined by a selfish ambition. And that's shown in the government, it's shown in the judicial system, and it's shown in, in Falcone. And we've, tra- we've, tried to, we've started, already started to answer the second question, but do you believe this portrayal is accurate? I believe it's accurate to the human experience. With, as a Christ follower and within a scriptural worldview, we're all created in God's image. So we all have that as a starting point, but there was the fall, and so that, that changes things. But if you take it down to the emotional experience of living life on this planet, I think it feels very true in that sense. Because even just with people that you meet, like you meet people and you're like, oh, that guy's awesome. I really like that guy. Oh, that guy's a jerk. He's probably always been a jerk. You know? Right. So I think it feels true in that sense, in the experiential sense. I agree. And I think we can actually point to examples of it right now. So as we're recording this, it's what? It's July 1st. 2016 and we have two people running for office you know hillary who is portrayed as being part of a corrupt government system with her emails and all that kind of stuff we have greedy businesses that are out there trying to take advantage of you know we saw during the financial crisis how banks were acting we see narcissistic individuals, our other candidate running for office, who's, who's very self-focused and who keeps telling everybody how awesome he is and Donald Trump. Um, I think we also see the truth of zealots. So Raz al Ghul is a zealot. We see zealots, whether it's with ISIS or other terrorist uh, factions, even within the Christian umbrella, we see people like the Westboro Baptist Church, these people who have become... Um, so zealous that they forget all compassion, they forget all humanity, they forget love, they forget the basic tenets of what um, what humanity is really, I think, trying to strive towards. So I, I think this is. I think the movie it does such a good job of reflecting, maybe in a larger than life kind of way, but very good job of reflecting what some of the the issues we're we're dealing with even right now. With that, we'll break into the concept of order and chaos. So what does the movie tell us is true about order and chaos? Yeah, order and chaos. It's funny, I, I almost, order to me almost doesn't seem like a strong enough term for what the hope in this movie is. Hmm. Um, I almost, I keep coming back to this, but I like what Rachel said. I like the word harmony instead because order almost implies more like what Gordon has been doing for his whole life. He's trying to manage the chaos, you know, Mm -hmm. it's still there underneath. He's just trying to make it more livable and more manageable because that's all he can do as one person. So I almost see it more as harmony and chaos because order seems like managing the chaos, whereas harmony seems more like the absence of the chaos. And they have their figureheads, Roz is chaos, Bruce is order, you know, and the two are fighting the whole time. Um, And I think it gets back to, the presence of evil and what evil looks like, you know, it's you give in to some of those choices within your circumstances that would make you appear to be doing more evil things, which lead to the chaos. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I'm really not ending my thoughts well, so I hope you know, actually be good. <laughs> you, you, what you captured, I, I think is 
even better because I, I like the term of, of harmony. I had kind of said like order and chaos are the yin and the yang of Gotham City right. to a certain extent. Sure. And when it comes to Batman Begins, I think the biggest que- the biggest question or the biggest thing that comes up is Bruce's character in realizing, and this is the way I put it, which I like yours better, so we're going to use that from now on, but that order without compassion isn't good enough. Yes. And I think that's harmony. Right. So harmony is when compassion itself is brought in. Um, and I think that's something that we don't see as much in the comics. In the yeah. comics, it really is kind of this, like, Joker's chaotic, and most of his other enemies are. Yes. And Batman is order. Right. But what, what Nolan Batman does... Batman beats Joker up and puts him in jail... Problem solved. Like, exactly. Good. But Nolan's a lot deeper than that. I think you really get a sense that order isn't the end of the story. Yep. You get a sense that you can put the criminals behind bars. You know, you can get to a point, again, not to talk too far ahead, but you can get to a point kind of where you are at the beginning of Dark Knight Rises where things are a little bit more peaceful. Right. But the underbelly of what led to the chaos to begin with is still there. Yep. and can still crop back up. So it's not the absence. Yeah, and it, and it is hard not to start to, to dive into, when you start talking about this topic, hard not to dive into the next movie. Yeah. Because I, I, I think actually the way, again, this is, Nolan is a fantastic filmmaker. There's no question. Because what he's done is he's set up this, it's not just about order, it's about harmony. Yeah. And what we're going to see is how do you combat chaos <laughs> when you also have to think about harmony, not just order. Yeah. And that's, that's what makes the, 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 the character of Joker in The Dark Knight just phenomenal. Because mm-hmm. what do you do with this person? Right. You know? um, let's dive into the next topic. The next topic uh, is an interesting one, actually, and, and I think the movie addresses it pretty uniquely, but let's talk about uh, wealth. What does the movie tell us about people who have wealth? I, I, you know, I guess I would kind of see that a little bit as being similar to the, the balance of good versus evil. You know, wealth is a picture of driving somebody in one direction or another. You look at Thomas Wayne, you look at Bruce Wayne, they, their wealth does not consume them. It's not the most important thing to them, and therefore it can become a tool to do a lot of good. But then you look at somebody like Robert Earl, who, you know, who's running Wayne Enterprises after Thomas Wayne passes away. And to him, you know, that pursuit of wealth, that pursuit of success is everything. And then you can see him ultimately lose his position of power as a result of that. So, um, and it's unclear how much wealth Roz has. So I don't know if you can really attribute that to him, but he's got a lot of resources. So maybe you would seem that he's got some wealth, but I think, you know, it's, it's getting back to the often misquoted scripture, which is money is the root of all evil. And that's not the scripture. The scripture is the love of money is the root of all evil. Yeah, I, I think you captured what the movie is telling us really well. And I think the movie deals with wealth in one of the most nuanced ways that we see in the modern day. Because generally speaking, those with wealth are often evil. Right. Like you said, the lo- like... Uh, money is the root of all evil. Like just that's showcase. Um, in this, in this case though, I think it's, it's not about that. It's about how to, it does not condemn wealth so much as you like redirect wealth to solve some of the biggest problems that we're facing. 
And I do think that it does condemn wealth that's spent on personal needs and wants. Yeah. I do think it does that. So I, I think this is like, there's this really funny scene. I, I don't know if funny is the right word, but Bruce pulls up in his Lamborghini with these two women that he's picked up and he's going to go have dinner. And we know that the film is not promoting that behavior because right. because he acts like a complete douchebag. He's like, and, and, and even to the extent to where he's acting, I mean, he's, we know he's putting on a character. Right. So we're not condemning him, right. but, but we know that he's making fun of people that we see in our media and things like that because he's writing a check to, oh, you don't like the way I'm behaving? Well, I'll just buy the restaurant, right? Um, but I do think that we even see in... in, in Thomas Wayne, because it says Thomas actually almost bankrupts himself and the company through some of the, th- the things that he attempts to do. Right. So I think that then that brings us back to this sense where Bruce is sort of trying to balance that. In other words, not only is he trying to do things, which he does, and we'll see this in later movies, um, by starting orphanages and, and doing things that are compassionate, but he's also fighting the corruption head on, um, with his, with his life as Batman. So he's using wealth in two ways. Yeah, I think I, it's a more complex view. And I just think that's, that's well done actually. Yeah. Wealth is interesting because this is just kind of a little aside, but I think wealth is one of those things similar to, you know, Bruce being afraid of bats and several other elements that just kind of show how good a filmmaker Chris Nolan is. Because he's coming into this movie with this set of parameters. You know, Batman has existed for more than 75 years. And so he has these things that he has to include in his story. Yeah. You know, there has to be bats. Bruce Wayne has to be rich. And maybe that stuff made more sense in 39 when Batman was created. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe it was just an excuse for him to be able to have these cool toys and cars and stuff like that. Right. I just think that highlights what a good filmmaker Chris Nolan is because he can take those parameters that are, in a sense, forced onto him and make it like, that's the story that I wanted to write to begin with. Yeah, no kidding. I don't think you can say enough about, about Nolan's skill in this regard. Okay, so last topic under this, under the human, human nature, human beings umbrella, and that is revenge. So what does the movie tell us is true about revenge? I think revenge is that tipping point between good and evil, at least in this movie. Like, look at again, look at Bruce and Roz, both in similar experiences. They dealt with a shocking death. And whether or not they take revenge seems to be what would define them as good and evil. It's certainly portrayed as a negative thing. You know, like you look at Rachel when she sees that Bruce has a gun on him to take revenge against Joe Chill. She slaps him. I mean, there's a lot of overt things in the movie that would tell you revenge is bad, um, which I would obviously agree with. But yeah, I think it is sort of put out there as the tipping point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. It's clearly telling us that revenge is wrong, which just thought of it off the top of my head, but this is... This is um, have you seen the Netflix series for Daredevil? Yeah. Okay. So, and spoiler alert on that, if you haven't seen that, we see Punisher and Daredevil interact. And I think, I mean, Daredevil is sort of like the Marvel version of Batman in some regards. Um, and so Punisher is, is, is something beyond that. And he's, and yeah. he's all out for revenge. Yeah. It's just pure and simple. 
and we see Daredevil fighting against that. Yeah. Uh, Matt Murdock is just he's a, he's against that that level of um, intervention. And I think this is this is very similar. Yeah. There's a line that I love from the second season of Daredevil where Punisher tells Daredevil, "You're just one bad day away from being me." Yep. And I feel like that's probably true within Batman Begins too. If he crosses that line once, you know, if he does something out of a sake of revenge one time, then he's on his road to being just as bad as Roz. That's very true. And a couple points. I think, one, the Daredevil series, if you haven't seen it, I would suggest you go out and watch it because, in my opinion, it's one of the best things that Marvel has ever done. Two, I think that um, this is where, when you see Zack Snyder's take on Batman, I like the dark sense that he gave him, but there seems to be a couple moments in Batman v Superman where he's crossed the line. Definitely. And it's so weird and it's so out of place to see Batman do that. Yes. Which I think some of that can be attributed to the type of Batman he's trying to present. You know, this is different. We're looking in Batman Begins, we're looking at Batman at his inception, at the birth of his ideals. Right. And then Snyder's Batman is 20 years down the road. Yep. I I do think that what's nice about this Batman is that he is being forced to wrestle with this concept of revenge and selfishness. And he hasn't had to succumb to some of the darker things. Um, he's, still, he's still idealistic in some of these regards. And I do think that that's, you know, if we're going to... And Batman v Superman is a completely other podcast. But if you're taking like and comparing and contrasting the Batmans... You know, that Batman is losing his compassion. He's losing the harmony. Yeah. Order is now the goal. It's yeah. not, harmony is not the goal anymore. It's just order. Yeah. Um, and I think you can see. Well, and within that movie, revenge is the goal. Yes. At least in the beginning. Yep. Very true. So I do think that this movie handles this topic nicely. And I think, again, and we've said it already, it's worth saying again the scenes between Alfred and Bruce are Academy Award worthy scenes. And this is where we see Bruce developing into Batman. It's not so much from his own experience as it is from the collective experience, collective experience of Alfred and Batman. Right. And, and they're, they're really, this movie would say, there is no Batman without Alfred. Right. Which is true. I think we would all say that's true. He's not just a butler. Like he's, a, he's a moral compass. Well, he's a picture of the person that Bruce is fighting for. Yep. In The Dark Knight, Bruce says to the Joker... The city is full of people who are ready to believe in good. Yep. You know, that's Alfred. Yeah. Like Alfred is the very picture of the good people that Batman is fighting for. Yep. And I think that Alfred and also uh, Lucius Fox are representatives of wisdom. Right. In the movie. They're, 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 so they're the, sort of the wise characters. So now we're going to get into the topic of relationships. And the first thing we're going to talk about is community. So is community really necessary? What does the movie tell us is true about community and our need for community? I think Nolan is telling us loud and clear that community is absolutely vital. Um, Even to go so far as to create a new character just to give Bruce more community in this movie. Um, For those of you out there who might not be nerds like us, Rachel Dawes is not a character from the comic books. She was created for this trilogy. And 
created to be just another piece of what ultimately drives Bruce. Um, going through the experience he did, losing his father, having his whole world shattered. You know, if he didn't have these people around him, these voices of reason, Rachel, Alfred, Lucius, Gordon, if they weren't there, he probably would never become Batman. He would never try to fight it. He would just, you know, degrade into the, the evil side of things. Yeah, you nailed you nailed it all. You know, that, that covers all of my notes, basically. And, and there's <laughs> one. No, no, that's perfect. There's one. Actually, I think there's one example of that because I would argue that when he's presented with the villager who they tell him to kill right. when he's with the League of Shadows, yeah. he doesn't not kill the villager because he's against killing at that point in the movie. He doesn't kill the villager because he's not sure what the villager actually did and didn't witness the crime. Right. If he had seen what the villager had done, he might react completely differently. In right. that in that scenario, and so it just that just backs up what you're saying, which is he needs his community to say, "There's a line here." Right, and there's a point at which it could seem like he would drift away from it because you know he leaves Gotham, and he spends all this time away from his community, and arguably his only community is Roz himself, yep. who is just corrupting his mind the whole time. But you got to remember, before he leaves Gotham, he has that that you know, very important interaction with Rachel where she tells him, you know, justice is about harmony. Revenge is about you making yourself feel better. She slaps him for having a gun. Like she hits him with truth and she is a trusted person in his life. So I think that's a big part of why he doesn't kill that guy as well, because he still has Rachel's goodness planted in his mind from that conversation. Absolutely. So even out there in the world, away from Gotham, away from the people he loves, they're still influencing who he is. Great. Uh, so what is your personal take? Like how, how does, how does this movie, is this true? Does it deal with community in a true way? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think community is absolutely vital to us as human beings. You need other voices in your life. We have a need to be loved. We have a need to be accepted. Caring about other people gives you a perspective on life that you don't have if you're only self-focused. And it's just foolish to think that you by yourself could possibly have everything figured out on how to navigate life. It's just not possible. <laughs> right. From a Christian perspective, we were created to be in community. You know, that's built into us. That's how God designed us. Hundred percent, and I could not agree more with Nolan's take as well. Yeah, um, community is absolutely necessary to making us the people who we want to become. And I also think that this is where, again, there's just so much artistry here because, in a way, at the same time, community is not only Batman's greatest asset, better than his utility belt, certainly, <laughs> but it's also his Achilles' heel. Yeah, because of the dual identity. So there, there is a real sense that the only person that Bruce is intimate with is Alfred. Mm -hmm. And to a certain extent later on, we'll see Gordon, Lucius to a certain extent. But really, even at the end of this movie, there's a separation between him and Rachel because he needs to protect her so that she doesn't know too much. So he's putting her at arm's length. 
And here's where I think we find Batman's biggest character flaw is that he needs community to make sure that his worldview is, is correct and that he's achieving harmony. Right. But at the same time, he is almost forced to push that community away. Yeah. And therefore, he's dealing with a lack of intimacy. Yeah. And I resonate with that a lot because that's, that's personally tough for me too. It's like, well, I don't want to talk about intense subjects and, and be intimate with people. I'd rather just like keep a surface level. Right. right? Um, so, so I think that it's you can, I think that people like me can totally relate to Batman, even though the fact that it's true that we need the community yeah. to, be, to become more intimate with. So it's phenomenal. I think too, you know, in the comics, and this is not a spoiler alert for the for the movies because this doesn't occur in the movies. But the comics, you see how when he loses parts of his community, yeah, like when Robin dies right. or whatever, like he 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 becomes darker yeah. every time, and and he retreats into himself, and yeah. that causes even even worse pain for himself and other people. So here's our last topic. This is a good one too. Um, what is Bruce's relationship with his father? How does it impact his life? And how does his father's death impact his life? And how does their relationship ring true? Or what is what is Nolan telling us is true about that relationship? This is a huge one for me because it occurred to me this is the first time I've watched Batman Begins in at least more than three years. Which means the last time I watched Batman's Batman Begins, I watched it from the perspective of a son. Hmm. But I've since had two boys. So hmm. this is the first time I've ever watched this movie from the perspective of a father. Hmm. So it's interesting to see both sides. Um, Bruce's relationship with his father is crucial. You know, like we talked about before, in the beginning of the film, you can even see it in the colors in the cinematography. Everything is just brighter. It's more hopeful, and it's because Bruce is existing in the context of his father's protection. You know, you never see Thomas on screen outside of Bruce's presence, so you're very much seeing him through Bruce's eyes. And he's this picture of security, <coughs> um, you know, healing, provision, protection, uh, wisdom, knowledge, all this stuff. And I felt that way about my dad when I was young. So I can totally relate to that. I was positive that my dad had life completely figured out. Hmm. So, no, I didn't lose my dad. I still have my dad. And to some degree, I still kind of feel that way about him, you know, in certain ways. But that relationship is so important. And now I look at it from the perspective of a father. And I think about what am I teaching my son? Am I making him feel safe? Am I making him feel protected? Hmm. And um, I would just hope that when my son gets to a point where he doesn't have me anymore, something good will drive him forward, just like something good from Thomas was driving Bruce forward. That's awesome. I don't have much to add to that that hasn't already been said. <laughs> um, I do think that, like, like you're talking about, and you, yeah, I'm just going to keep using the word that you use because I think it's great, but this, the sense that harmony is the goal and is the dream mm -hmm. comes from Thomas. Sure. And yeah, and, and it's, and it's Alfred, his, the other father figure in his life who constantly has to remind him of that. Yes. Uh, and, he, and he reminds him of it too. When he, when he says, um, 
when, when Bruce basically says, I don't care about my name. And he says, well, you should, because the name is also your father's name. Exactly. Don't and destroy it. Exactly. It used to mean something. Yeah. Um, so I think that's fantastic. Uh, I think there's uh, a lot of truth to be, to be had in that. Like you mentioned, like this is true f- for you. You know, you found truth because you've said, here's where I was as a son. And then here's where I'm looking at it as a father. And this is the change. I'm not a father. I mean, I have a dog and a cat, but <laughs> I don't think they look at me for these kinds of, it's pretty much the same thing. Yeah. They, they, they look at me for, if I'm going to feed them that day, <laughs> right. um, I'll make a bold statement here. I do think that if Bruce's father was still alive, I actually think that Bruce might be more than I, than an agnostic. Yeah, I would agree with that. Because I think that there's something that he's dealing with that says, how can I believe in God when the biggest dream I see is of what Thomas was trying to do, but he died trying to achieve that dream. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that's or when the biggest picture of what God might be, my father. Yep, exactly. Is taken away from me. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's that's so that's a very pivotal moment um, in his life. And I also think this is where Thomas Wayne is actually a type of Christ who never resurrected. In other words, he he's bringing about, <laughs> at least not physically. Yeah, at least not physically. Yeah. So he's so this is this is where he's influencing the city. He's compassionate. He's loving. He is giving up of his resources. Um, and yet after his death, all of that is at a loss now. Um, and that's kind of a picture for, uh, uh, for me of he is the type of Christ in the world, the one who brings harmony. Yeah. Um, and yet he's gone. And what do you do with that? Yeah. Well, anything else you would like to say about the movie in general? I love it. <laughs> it was really it was really cool to watch it again you know to and keeping all these things in mind in preparing for this podcast you know again especially having the perspective of a father now and and you know I sat down I watched it with my wife so we talked through a lot of this stuff together which was really cool really looking forward to it getting on to the next two. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to keep this series going. So Daryl and I in the next several weeks are going to talk about the dark Knight, and eventually the dark Knight rises as well. Um, I couldn't agree more. This, this has been my favorite podcast to do because of the material. Mm. Um, and the material has been just so rich yeah. to draw things from. I think Zack Snyder, as I compare like the DC movies and I, and I think I said this in a blog post recently, but like Nolan, I think, is almost solely responsible, with the exception of the X-Men movies. Nolan is almost solely responsible for the level that the comic book movies have achieved in terms of revenues and popularity. Totally. And it's because he created great films. With great They're, characters. With great characters. Like, like you could actually, and I believe this, you could strip out the elements of any sort of comic book superhero-ness um, and you would ha- still have an amazing film. Yeah. It doesn't need to be called Batman. There doesn't need to be a suit. There doesn't need to be uh, a guy who wears a, a burlap sack over his head and scares people. Like You could create a movie with real human beings that don't wear suits right. and that don't come out of the combo, and it would be a fantastic movie in and of itself. I think it's unique because we really, even now, I don't think we've actually seen that replicated. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, to the closest extent... 
has been, um, and some people on Facebook said this was their fa- favorite movie, but Winter Soldier is getting close. Um, but a lot of the bigger Marvel movies are just, um, they're a little bit more bubblegummy. They're not dealing with some of the serious topics yeah. that they're dealing with here. Well, I think what Marvel has taken from Nolan is an emphasis on character, yep. which I think they've done. They've exhibited largely in the directors that they hire yep. and the writers that they hire. They let their character-driven filmmakers, which is great. But they have also retained a certain level of comic book fantasticalness, if that's a word, yep. that Nolan, he didn't reject it, but he didn't need it. Exactly. Because story, you know? Exactly. So, and that's not to, not to take one thing away from either side. I love the Marvel movies. Winter Soldier is one of my favorite movies. But The Dark Knight is my favorite movie. Yes. Yeah, and... and I'm excited to talk about that one next, and obviously, if you subscribe to the podcast, you'll be able to get that. It is certainly within my top five favorite movies. I have to go with Raiders of the Lost Ark and Empire Strikes Back, but it's right there in the the next few uh, movies, and I can't wait to talk about it. So thanks for joining us on this one, and we will talk to you next time. If you liked what you heard on today's podcast, please share it with someone you know. If you have a friend who loves comics, we'd love for you to invite them to listen. We also want to hear from you. So don't forget, you can leave us a comment, you can review this podcast, or you can send us an email at reclamationsociety at gmail.com. We may even read your comment or email in our next podcast. Don't forget to check out our Star Wars fan film on YouTube starting July 24th. And stay tuned for our upcoming podcast series. We'll be doing podcasts on The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises, and also the new Batman the Killing Joke animated movie that comes out later this month. Until next time, just like the world's greatest detective, keep seeking the truth.